It's This Week in Sleeves with your host, the great lord, Joshua Riegel and Sleazy K. This podcast has been rated Category 3. No one under 18 may be permitted. Let's talk some fucking swordplay with the occasional nudity in a movie that is a serious drama. Wackiness does not ensue, nor that much stealing from other movies other than his own in Chu Yenping's Slave of the Sword. And I'm Sleazy K with me is the great Lord Joshua Regal during a little run of adult wuxia films. So, hello buddy. Hello. We had the assassin last time and uh, with the eyelids being sewn shut and not that much nudity. A little bit more nudity this time around, but it's... Um, it's a movie that uh, sort of parks, its, parks itself into camps, uh, cashing in on uh, being a Category 3 film and cashing in on the emerging and ongoing uh, wuxia film of the 90s. So it's a little bit of both. And uh, why not? That That's kind of smart to place yourself in two, two camps that are potentially profitable. So it's just not porn, it's uh, it's uh, it's action as well. So um, shall we get into it? Well, uh, This Week in Sleaze, of course, episode 70. There is uh, this uh, episode's uh, number, we passed 69. We didn't do uh, anything special for 69, baby. Uh, we're already uh, ongoing, uh, trekking towards 100. Uh, and uh, the 17th episode is going to commence uh, after some uh, contact information. This Week in Sleaze, of course, is on podcastonfire.com, part of the Podcast on Fire network. Our archive of um, many, many episodes, many years of episodes are on that very site. can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find uh, podcasts. Uh, Stitcher, we were on Stitcher, but they uh, immediately shut down. I think they were absorbed by like Sirius. And therefore, the service that Stitcher provided uh, is uh, no more, at least not uh, a variation, meaning that uh, we are on there. It's just simply no more. But uh, wherever you can find podcasts, there is uh, This Week in Sleaze. So check us out, our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I have a website uh, that I don't uh, post on anymore, so goodreviews.com. But you can find a ton of Category 3 films, Taiwanese films, Hong Kong films over there. But I do write uh, still. I post on uh, my Letterboxd uh, and uh, on my Twitter, which is so good reviews. So writing is in my blood. I still want to do it. But uh, I'll post it on the socials instead. You are on the socials, but you you're, uh, you have an endeavor that I don't have. You, you have a YouTube channel with some stuff on it, uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan related, I suppose. Uh, we haven't talked of it uh, in a while, so let's plug something old that we haven't talked of for a while. You did a little doc on um, crazy Hong Kong stunt persons a while ago. I did, yeah. Kind of, uh, actually did pretty well. Uh, it was something I was just like, man, I want to try to edit something just kind of quickly. And, you know, had all these, you know, great clips from these Hong Kong films. Of course, you know, basically demonetized or whatever the second it goes up so it's not like it gets monetized but it's still a, a, I was still very happy with it. it still turned out really well got a lot of really you know fun comments and stuff from people and do you remember consciously picking stuff that stuntman and director Ridley Choi has done consciously no no just kind of kind of happens because uh, he directed the film uh, no regret no return with max mock where there is the stunt where a uh, motorbike is uh, hit by a car at an intersection granted that is not ridley's stunt 
but it's his film and within the film Ridley does do uh, stunts that look uh, awfully difficult as well but mm-hmm. uh, but it's that stunt uh, by someone else unfortunate person uh, that gets uh, quoted a lot I don't know if you put that in the doc or not uh, that, uh, uh, yeah pretty sure it's in there yeah that intersection hit is uh, like well we'll see how it goes <laughs> you know the i think what spurred uh, that idea on for me was like uh uh full contact there's that just you know it's a more of a gangster movie and whatnot but like they're just out of nowhere there's one scene where uh that guy gets kicked over the railing and then he lands and he hits oh he lands and hits the um picture somebody going over a balcony essentially and then landing on a staircase on the railing you know basically rib first if i'm not recall and then just just the brutal nobody should you know ever even think about doing something like that it's so great that no one spots the continuity floor in uh, in that scene like uh, in the second shot he's uh, facing the opposite uh, yes, way he was falling he but, but no one spots that because you go like Oh, All you're wow. paying attention to is smashing ribs onto that wooden railing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, Christ almighty. And, you know, I feel like nobody ever talks about that. You know, it's a great movie. It has the awesome, you know, uh, pre-Matrix uh, bullet time stuff and all that. And uh, just an awesome, sleazy gangster movie. But, like, right in the midst of it, it has one of the just most brutal falls you could ever imagine and i was like i just want to put that in something how could i make a video about that and there weird cinema is the name of the channel on youtube and uh i am working still on you know this arcade project uh which i might make a, a video about as well i don't know if it's gonna it's not gonna go on weird cinema but uh i'm kind of working on that but um it's taken up most of my time so i haven't been working on my uh Bruce Bloitation documentary, but that is fully written and about 20 or so minutes of the video footage has been edited. Um, I just have to kind of piece it together now, which I think will come quick once I put all of my intro, you know, all my time into it. But uh, just in time for the, you know, full length documentary that's, you know, debuting in film festivals and stuff right now. I forget what it's called, uh, the new documentary yeah yeah i've seen it promoted it's uh maybe something with event of the clones or something about yeah revenge of the clones yeah i actually watched a for research uh not for that but for other things a bruce exploitation movie of sorts uh that was actually pretty good see if you can remember this one out of all the ones you watched uh oh, fist of fury 2 the lead shonam fist of fury 2 with uh, bruce very Lai. good yeah which is a direct sequel to Fist of Fury. Not the only direct sequel, I think. That's the Fist one where Fury. he plays his brother, right? Yes, sir. Like, yeah, yeah. Very good. But but the thing is, it, it was so goofy. Like, uh, I was made at the same time as new Fist of Fury, so they didn't have Nora Meow, but they do have the Nora Meow character. And during the funeral scene of Bruce Lee's character, she kills herself. Yeah. Uh, but you never see her. She has a uh, she has something over her head, like a funeral uh, clothing yes. over her head. So you never see her, and she dies, and uh, that solves that. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, but that was pretty damn solid all all around. Yeah, to me, it's one of the more better serious uh, 
Bruce Ploitation films of the time, like ones that actually tried to communicate with his films. You know, they're kind of like very few of those. Seems like so many of them are fake pseudo documentaries or pseudo docudramas or bats, you know, balls out crazy movies, uh, you know, or just some kind of like you know, movie that features one of the quote-unquote clones in the movie just gets retitled something, you know. Um, but this one was solid. Uh, so um, yeah, the, the, the actual YouTube upload was uh, partnered with Fist of Fury 3, but I don't know if that is a sequel to that Fist of Fury 2. I didn't want to confuse myself further when I didn't need to. I only needed that second film for that uh, for, for the purpose of that day. That's part of my problem is watching so many of them. They get kind of uh, mixed in there. But I believe it. I think it's another Bruce Lye uh, venture. And I think it's kind of directly right after that one. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah, made a couple of years after. So, uh, But uh, I didn't need it for um, for the research purpose in question. So, um, uh, so it was fun to, to dip your toes into it. But uh, doing it too much, too many in one get, go will just confuse the heck out of me, so I'll, I'll, I'd rather take it easy <laughs> and uh, make sure I uh, remember that. Uh, uh, because there is a Fist of Fury part two, something or something else, that is a Dragon Lee film, I believe. So it's like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not as good either. <laughs> exactly, I do remember that. That being a little bit low on the on, on the thing. But, uh, uh, but, but this Fist of Fury 2, uh, much better than new Fist of Fury. Ton, lots better, lots better. Not as boring, not as boring. Uh, but uh, cool, cool, cool. That's uh, that, that's life. What's happening in life uh, currently? Well, we're here to talk about uh, Wusha films with uh, nudity in them. The best of both worlds, I suppose. So, or is it? And uh, we'll find out uh, after the break, uh, after the music break, uh, as we're going to talk of the Slave of the Sword from the, the magical year of 1993. And welcome back. The film of this episode is Slave of the Sword from 1993. And the plot goes as follows. Uh, the character Shang Wu Nian, played by Pauline Chan, sees her father killed. And when they're begging on the streets, uh, subsequently she is taken into the stable of prostitutes run by Ye Hon, played by Joyce Nye. Plans by Ye Hon for Wu Nian are something different though. And uh, out in the dark woods... Uh, fighting and eliminating opponents in the martial world uh, is uh, that is taking place and it involves uh, silent swordsman yun played by jackson lao and unique lee played by max mock so uh, there are a couple of seemingly unrelated strands of a uh, girl being taken into prostitution and the age-old fighting of uh, supremacy in the martial world taking place here but these two strands do connect towards the end and uh, that's the plot layout for you. So, this is from Taiwanese filmmaker Chu Yanping, or Kevin Chu. And he has, um, on more than one occasion, let's say, reused aspects of uh, other movies for his very own. 
such as in the show-stopping Asian spaghetti western Chinese guys in Nazi uniforms, femme fatale, extravaganza Golden Queen's Commando from 1982, aka Seven Black Heroines. He also did, of course, the all-star prison drama Island of Fire, which is, in all honesty, I think it's gaining a reputation as the years go by. But, but it is actually a pretty damn solid film, despite being a blatant copy of uh, scenes from other films. It's still very, very solid. Uh, for some reason, uh, he got his actor Samo and the likes to take this seriously, despite this being a copy of Cool Hand Luke, among, among other films, you know. But uh, I've always liked Island of Fire, whether in the full version or in the 90 minute, uh, 90 minute version. Uh, so, so yeah, he's copied great scenes beat by beat from the likes of Cool Hand Luke and My Name is Nobody. But uh, Chu Yanping in the middle of New Wave Kung Fu and, and the swordplay craze here features the reuse aspect in a proper way. And what that means is the following. He was the producer, Chu Yanping, and part of the production company behind Michael Mack's wild wuxia film Butterfly and Sword from the same year, starring Michelle Yeoh, Tony Leung, Joey Wong, and Donnie Yen. And Slave of the Sword was, was released a few months later, and uh, the, it sees uh, Chu Yanping reusing sets and even a little bit of, even a little bit of footage from Butterfly and Sword, uh, most notably Tony Leung's uh, or his stuntman's flying arrow attack is uh, put into this film. Uh, but it's put into this film that is an 18 plus years or older to get into the cinema oriented uh, high flying drama. Butterfly and Sword wasn't a category free film. Um, so yeah, he, uh, he he ventured into the new Wuxia film. Uh, but he he was leaning on seriousness to a degree. I mean, Butterfly and Sword told things dramatically to a degree, but it had a lot more over-the-top action, a plot that was quite hard to follow, to be honest. Uh, but Chu Yinping, uh, other than Slave of the Sword and producing that, he did The Wacky Flying Dagger. Really wacky and insane. It was co- uh, written by Wang Jing, and having him and Chu Yinping on the production, you'd imagine it should be wacky, and it certainly was. And here's... Slave of the Sword, which is his attempt at uh, bringing in drama into the mix of wuxia and category three. I, I mentioned a little bit about uh, you know the longer version of Island of Fire being uh, being out there. There's a short version, a long version, and uh, the Taiwanese version in that case is two hours. The Hong Kong version is ninety minutes. In the case of Slave of the Sword, it was only a few minutes longer in Taiwan. So it's like 95 and the Hong Kong version is a little bit below 90 minutes. Uh, but the uh, Island of Fire, the war drama, Home Too Far, were delivered at home in Taiwan at two hours or so. But uh, again, Slave of the Soul was merely a few minutes longer in Taiwan versus Hong Kong. So, And uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's suitable. Um, and I'm sure the extra footage is nothing uh, earth-shattering for the film or anything. So in Hong Kong, though, I don't know how it did in Taiwan. Slave of the Sword earned 2.6 million Hong Kong dollars. So it wasn't in any top 10 lists of that year. Uh, the, the top films were the likes of Floating Scholar from Stephen Chow, Fong Sai-ok 1 and 2, Once Upon a Time in China 3. And the action design that was partly lifted from Butterfly and Sword uh, wasn't nominated either from um, uh, uh, at the Hong Kong Film Awards. So... It didn't do too well. We are going to move on to some sadder things now. We we mention Pauline Chan a lot. Because she's in a, these movies, you know, Escape, Escape from Brothel and the likes. 
but we we jokingly and sort of uh, achingly mentioned the, the shower footage with Pauline Chan that appears uh, across at least two category three films and shower footage well w- w- what is special about that like it's a category three mo- movie of course it's going to be shower scenes or what have you but it comes off as random hostage footage with Pauline Chan rather than well-conceived erotica and the late actors really silently screams for help in that footage he looks into the camera and it's not funny at all and I don't remember if it had any context in either of the films we've seen it in. I think the one what one film that it was in, it was a film called Love Is Love Is Over, I think. It featured Charlie Joe and Stuart Ong and Lee Chung Lee. Is that the one where Charlie was a ghost? Maybe. I just Thanks. know that it was a ton of fun, but then that appeared. And for a few seconds it was not a ton of fun anymore. Uh, but I thought it would be wise to sort of speak of it in a little bit of context that uh, how we feel about that footage, but also who she was because she's not with us anymore. Uh, Hong Kong actors born in Shanghai in 1973 emigrated to Hong Kong after her parents' divorce at the age of 12, went into modeling uh, part-time at 15, and she competed in the 1990 Miss Asia pageant. Uh, she caught the eyes of producers after that point and was mainly cast in Category 3 films, including an early role in 1992's Escape from Brothel, which is a lead role, a serious work, and a quite, uh, I mean, a, a, as goofy as it is to talk about Billy Chow versus Sophia Crawford uh, fighting nude with each other, it's still quite a brutal film, though. Pauline went to work in films to support her family as well so it wasn't just this selfish choice to go into softcore and dramatic acting uh, and she was very prolific across the 90s she made appearances in 20 plus category 3 films like devil of rape sex for sale a wild party but also made appearances in mainstream comedies like stephen Chow's james bond parody from beijing with love where her boobs were a deadly weapon so uh, she had uh, she had guns in her boobs. So um, that was a fun sight. Uh, she was also in the wild wuxia comedy Flying Dagger for Chu Yinping. And uh, in 1997, she got into a relationship with the Playboy Taiwanese investment tycoon and celebrity Huang Jian Chung, who was 33 years older than she was. Um, and she relocated to Taipei at that point, uh, but they broke up two years later. And in an interview after Pauline Chan's death, uh, Huang said, true or not, that Pauline had been using drugs and gotten into sorcery since 1998. What that means exactly, I can't tell, but it's it's a beginning of a spiral of sorts as she apparently did use drugs and uh, to balance herself uh, and uh, her heart, I suppose, during that turbulent uh, relationship. And between those years of 1998 and 2001, there were public incidents that demonstrated that that all was not well with Pauline. She apparently attempted suicide during a TV interview. So I, I don't know what she tried to do, if she tried to jump from something. or uh, She attacked people, undressed in public, tra- traveled to other countries without proper documentation and was uh, de- deported as a result. She set fire to her residence. She was in and out of hospitals due to her drug problems. And even when she managed to go abroad, uh, there were still incidents, such as when she was briefly sent to jail in the UK for beating a person that she didn't know, like a random person in public. 
And by 2002, Pauline had relocated to Shanghai. She had a bit role in a Taiwanese TV series for the same year. She gave birth to a baby boy at the end of June 2002, but sadly it took her own life uh, a month uh, later by jumping from her 24th floor apartment. Um, her son was then uh, later um, adopted by a Taiwanese film producer Chu Li Kuan. And uh, Pauline's life was uh, also made into a shot on video in 2002 biopic. And because you know, because it came out that fast, I wonder if it's has substance or not. You know what I mean? Like uh, you, when you scramble to put together uh-huh. the story, I don't know how you how pure your um, intentions are. Uh, but the, the actress Crystal Shun played her, who herself also committed suicide in 2009 due to mounting debt in her life. There's so more. That, that's a, you know, I can take gore, I can take freaky shit, I can take animal cruelty. I really can't take the Pauline Chan shower footage. It's, yeah. It just reeks of like gangsters uh-huh. armed to the teeth behind that camera. And just, we, we're gonna we're gonna shoot you, you have nothing to say about it, and we're gonna put it into films and you're not gonna see a dime of that footage. Just do it, otherwise we'll kill you. And uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, triad involvement in films, category free or not, is a very known thing. Uh, triads have gone after and gotten the uh, services of big time actors you know Andy Lau and Simon Yam and the likes uh, whether Taiwan or Hong Kong that's uh, that's a matter of fact uh, but that's a uh, Pauline Chan's story uh, so um, it was not a career that uh, flourished post uh, category three but uh, let's return to the film at hand Slave of the Sword and uh, let me throw over to you for a little uh, uh, quick opinion first of all of uh, Slave of the Sword Man, well, you know, talking all about Pauline Chan's life, kind of, you know, oof. Sometimes it's rough. We, we've done Men Behind the Sun on this show, and uh, that means you have to go into rough real-life details. In that case, war crimes. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> was it Rape Night King or uh, Men Behind the Sun too? We got Plague Bob. I can't remember. Uh, Laboratory of the Devil, a.k.a. Men Behind the Sun too. Yeah, the, the, the goofier sequel that uh, Godfrey Ho put together, partially at least. So. Oh, Miss Plague Bob. Where's he at to you know, cheer us up? Well, he, he presumably got the plague. So. <laughs> Probably not too much of a coming back from that, I guess, huh? Shit. I feel better! <laughs> no, you'll be stone dead in, in a minute. Had a touch of the plague... Uh, just getting a little better. Oh, getting over that now. Um, this movie's got a lot going for it. The action scenes are great. They're, they're so fast moving, so precise. You know, the the choreography is really well done. Looks great. The movie is uh, shot very well. There's a, a lot of scenes that just it has that quintessential you know, early to mid-90s Category 3 blue hue going on, but, you know, it's not to such a degree that you can't see what's going on. You know, everything's very polished, everything looks good. You've got a a wonderful cast, you know, Pauline Chan, who, you know, despite everything that happened with her that we talked about, she did really well in this movie. She's great. Max Mock is always great in everything. A lot of, you know, all these pieces should come together and make a movie. Oh, it's violent, too. There's lots of violence. You know, it's like, you know, a lot of fun violence, not just like gruesome to be gruesome, but like, you know, uh, really quick shots of like dismemberments and stuff like that. You know, all these things kind of like this is my wheelhouse. This should be I should love this, but I don't. (laughs) 
it's I think you know it's a combination of probably the subtitles being so poorly done that you can't understand a lot of what's going on and also I would think that even if this subtitles were perfect I think that it, the plot seems a little convoluted you, you focus on characters doing things that make you dislike them you know and it, it's hard to come back from that and get really invested in a character when you're like why is she sucking up to this asshole you know like <clears throat> she's been all this time with a person who's a dickhead to her but we're supposed to you know like him and her it's the twist and turns of the martial world that, that we're uh, quite used to and also quite used to not understanding good subtitles or not because uh, sometimes these movies took uh, adapted works that had been on uh, tv for for eternity and serialized for eternity so they felt like well the, the built-in audience doesn't need to have this retold to them again but the, the victims of that it's us <laughs> because we don't know uh, i'm not saying this is adapted but sometimes these wuxia films they didn't bother with uh, re-establishing details again they just went for it it's kind of like giallo you get into giallos and you start watching these movies and they're so unfair and they're twists and turns you know mm-hmm. that it, it makes for something kind of difficult to get into because you're like oh you know okay well I've, I've seen enough thrillers i should know what's going on and then you find out oh, shit this is completely unfair and they didn't even try to like build something you know mm-hmm. some kind of thriller or plot device that's uh gonna work for everybody it's just like ah, oh, well we'll just make it somebody that's never really introduced until the very end of the movie and that's who your killer is and 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 at the end they spot uh, like a glass statue of a rando animal that dario argento had not yet used you know oh that zebra sculpture that i saw at the time of the murder you know that like they incorporated like, like, like they copied uh, the animal titles but uh, put a twist on them but yeah. then they had to search for like how do we we've done this so much like how do we retitle it <laughs> like, like how, how do we make the fresh title at least in english uh, so um it's kind of it's kind of fun that way we'll uh, put it in a pin in it for now i like it a li- i like it a little bit uh, more than you um the dramatic skills of chu and ping are here he doesn't go overboard i think and, and blow his uh, ambitions away with a long running time there there's it is a short film there's enough drama here for barely 80 minutes of film plus fairly long end credits so it's over quite quickly uh, and for me it concerns such a small group of characters that i, that I did find it quite uh, coherent uh, considering these movies uh, i think the sex scenes are blessed with a keen eye for visuals they, they look uh, very uh, very good they're an attractive part of the drama uh, they're even darkly disturbing to a degree like it's not uh, depicted as goofy it's not depicted as romantic at all times and uh, the the wuxia world uh, is fun to watch for all its violence and a little bit of humanity uh, in there so uh, you you can sell this um, this to those looking for gorgeous flesh on display but they're also something for the crowd that uh, have watched uh, once upon a time in china and all the side movies and are looking for something else, then there there is something genuinely like good in terms of action to um, to to pick out in this film. Did you have time to watch uh, Butterfly and Sword? Uh, yeah, 
because that's an example of let's crank these films out coherency who knows but let's crank it out anyway <laughs> and and do it in a dissing style and uh, make it kind of groovy in terms of violence and uh, that'll be good we have donnie we have michelle we have tony we have joey wong it uh, we, it'll all be good i find that oddly acceptable in a way this is how movies were made man uh, we need no good subtitles, but we need wild sights like Tony Lung going through a guy. Human arrow. So so, so I find it oddly uh, satisfactory watching the, the film factory in Hong Kong and Taiwan crank these out, these new wave wuxia films. Uh, whether you think Butterfly and Sword is the better out of all the imitations, I don't know, but uh, it, it's a sight to behold, uh, at least in terms of action. I believe that both are pretty difficult for me at times to wrap my head around plot-wise, but uh, I think the abundance of violence, I felt like there was more violence in Butterfly and Sword than there actually was in uh, this film, you know, and I don't know, that, that I think might have, <laughs> on my lizard brain side of things, might have kept me a little more entertained at times but 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 you're right about this movie is still striking an elegant pose Mm -hmm. Uh, even though it seemed like every movie could do the period film standard uh, like the standard technical quality from a production design point and uh, standpoint and costume design point and then add action it's still you gotta go to work to make it look elegant and i think this production does and uh, there are a couple of uh, shots that are just uh, granted they, they look like they're ripped from a Chinese ghost story. That elegance is very Choi Hak and Ching Su Dong combined. But it still uh, looks good on this film to uh, uh, to work the interiors and then work the blue lit night footage that you hinted at. And they shoot these silent brooding whether they're heroes or villains. In a very compelling way, they're blasted with wind in uh, those uh, night uh, uh, in that night footage, blue lit night footage, and Max Mock is shot in shadows. You don't know who that guy is. So, uh, and and then that quick and flailing action uh, enters the film. You know, it it evokes the sufficient '90s style action, meaning that it's not the greatest of uh, the Once Upon a Time in China type of films, but it certainly is very sufficient with. Uh, Stuntmen uh, doing uh, grounded work, doing spinning work in the wires. Then you have inserts of younger and on and older actors, and all that stuff. Uh, it's always been a favorite of mine, and whenever it appears, I'm decently distracted. But it's still pretty good. They they do pretty good solid a- action work here. For for me, that was almost stronger than uh, the memory. Like I have le- I have kind of less memories so- sometimes when thinking of the film of this being a category three film. You know, it seemed to the, the elements seem to coexist. Uh, so, so I don't know what element you, you thought was better in terms of that. Like, like was it good as a sex film or was it better as this uh, sort of low budget 90s action film? I will give the film credit that it doesn't feel that exploitative in terms of being, you know, just a sex film or something like that, you know. Everything seems to mostly have a purpose. Like, a lot of your love scenes, I'm trying to think how many there were. They, they all felt to be in context for the most part. You know, nothing really seemed to stand out as, like, vulgar or, or you know, too over the top. They're, they're not oddly placed 
Like, right, uh, like, it's not like you like they were watching the narrative. What's going on with Pauline emotionally? Oh, mm-hmm. here are two characters that uh, like go like, hmm, 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 yeah, and then like uh, boink, 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 and then we resume the drama after There's a few not minutes. That strange scene with like two people looking over and some eyes whacking off or something like that, and so they get too aroused, and then they're all you know two sh- random strangers who are having sex now, you know. There's none of that. It's, you know, the sex scenes, at least, they've bought their place within the confines of the storyline. So I don't know if that would, does does that mean that it's a successful sex film or does that mean that it's just a successful film, you know? I would probably venture towards just being a successful movie in these regards. I think the action is, to me, is probably one of the best, you know, selling points for the movie. I think the, the fact that you get this level of violence, this level of sex and everything like that in a movie that still comes across as being, you know, you look at this, you look at this cast and you think, okay, well, it's not just some, you know, rinky dink little thing. This is, this is an actual legit feature. And and she makes herself emotionally available. I thought, I mean, uh, I know we're not seeing eye to eye on the drama necessarily, but I thought Pauline really engaged in this, you know, she we see these early stages where she witnesses her father perish, die, you know, during uh, uh, dur- during um, rainy weather and there's mud and uh, then she's in that sort of rock bottom environment. This martial world is certainly not pretty, at least on the outside. And then I believe uh, Jackson Lau's character takes her father's head in front of her, like uh, yeah. after he kills him, he still decapitates him. So it's this animalistic, uh, animalistic style that for some characters mean they're one step away from kind of animalistic sex as well. Especially him, Jackson Lau's character, and the Joyce Nye character who brings in Pauline Chan to make her the premium prostitute in her little stable there. The movie actually evokes a little bit of intimate confessions of a Chinese courtesan in these uh, sections, uh, like uh, when Joyce and I licks up blood either from Jackson Liu or Pauline Chan from her back or from a wound, which is uh, one of the striking images from Intimate Confessions. Yeah, Jackson Liu. Um, so he, he is uh, kind of uh, riffing on riffing on that, but not copying scenes uh, uh, beat by beat like he has. Uh, and uh, so, there's, so there is sort of an animalistic steam, but also some more uh, tender eroticism and classy eroticism uh, throughout the film but he's never shooting her in her subsequent sex scenes under duress you know at the very least so it's mm-hmm. not a rinky dinky if you will uh, uh, cheapo sex film that had some costumes and sets to run around on you know uh, I mean even that scene where they bathe her amidst long white garments and all the maidens wear white and they place the camera in the roof uh, section of that set. So you got this top-down shot that really evokes Choi Hak and Ching Su Dong mm-hmm. and a Chinese ghost story. So so it's very uh, classy. But he's also wise to actually make her first sex scenes as a character unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Just because she's had a makeover, she's not transformed into this uh, desensitized sexual fleshy animal you know other than the action i think she is a reason to kind of watch this because she is uh, as untrained as she might be she is uh, investing 
emotionally into this um, polling chance. So I think uh, there, there was always talent on display here, in all honesty. But more in the roles that evoke a sad, uh, sad story, a sad atmosphere. And then without it even being connected, you kind of start feeling sad for the way her life went. At the same time, she, she, was, uh, she was good at uh, finding the emotional beats, um, which uh, might explain her later behavior in life. I don't know. You bring up that scene where, like, she gets to the brothel or what have you, and she's made, you know, we're going to break her in and have her sleep with all these men or what have you. And it's like, it's another one of those scenes that kind of shows the, the, the competency behind the scenes of, uh, you know, how this director works. And the way it's shot, you're not sure if she's being raped by one man or ten men, you know? Like, it could be scenes that are cut together. It's spliced, you know, very quickly together. Boom, 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 boom. Different shots. You can see long hair. You can see short hair. But the men are not at all the focus of the scene. You have to look hard to even see them. You know, essentially all you're focusing on is Pauline Chan's uh, struggles, the horror in her eyes, the tears, the crying, you know, the, the effect that this is taking on her. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like, wow, that's really good. And then you compare it to essentially, I believe it is it the final shot with her and the dumpling. Is it the very last shot? Uh, uh, for some reason, I don't remember uh, that. But uh, it, it uh, there is a scene uh, in the film where uh, she is begging for food, though. Uh, it takes place earlier in the film. It might be in the end credits, uh, too. So they, they replay it during the end credits just to fill out the running time. But just the, the comparison to where she is here versus the uh, at the end of the movie, you know. That switch from sympathy to not sympathy without spoiling it might prove problematic. But uh, I, I, I did find myself investing in that story i mean there's no four-star artistic merit here of course but it's still laudable to me that they set out to do drama here perhaps they did it fast but sufficient results do come out of it like sympathy towards her character there's some good use of eroticism between joyce and i and pauline chan hinting that the character of Wu yan has settled for being exploited but she look she, she's lying awake at one point as the camera zooms in on her naked body and she kind of is looking away at a distance either lying awake because she's completely sort of uh, dead inside or maybe she's crafty maybe she's actually crafting because she has a score to settle even if she uh, can't do it physically herself so that's how the plot starts to evolve and Sympathy and uh, allegiances uh, shift, I suppose. But um, there, there, there was a really cool um, audio c- uh, cue out of all things that I attach to. I don't usually do. Where that scene, while uh, after Joyce and Pauline have had their sex scene, and she's lying awake, and there is a romantic score playing, but it's actually overlaid at times with heavy percussion, suggesting she is elsewhere. So just think of a tropey traditional. Chinese instruments type of plot and then put in this uh, this kind of haunting percussion like boom 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 like, like a different mood and uh, I, I do find that that touch is not present in all these uh, random category free period costume films uh, but, but again no four star stuff here but I, I do appreciate the uh, that the filmmaker in this case engaged himself in the drama and translated some of that 
um, fairly well mixed with yeah, because uh, those are sections that are not noisy as such uh, in terms of uh, the whooshy style, but it mixes with uh, the action that is, of course, uh, uh, the frenzy of the film. Uh, but but it continues to be a solid mix of wires, fast movements, editing, sword exchanges, bodies torn apart. And it, it's not great effects work in terms of it's not Story of Ricky type of builds in terms of the gore, but you clearly attach to it, uh, even if you maybe spotted that they're just tearing puppets apart, really. It's nothing special yeah. in terms of gore, but uh, it seemed like you attached to the way it was put together, despite. You know, you always have, uh, you tear apart a puppet and it's got fake intestines in it. I'm, I'm pretty interested. <laughs> but uh, going back, I just pulled up the movie just to double check myself or whatever. It's not the very last scene. It's like the one before it or whatever. I'm going to go ahead and this is a spoiler-ish. So skip forward a couple minutes. But um, just to see if it kind of like, if the scenes correlated as much as I was thinking. And, you know... So, you know, you've got the early scene where she's raped by the man or men, you can't even tell, and she's crying, she's, you know, devastated, and then you cut to the end of the film where, you know, she's been attacked and she's left on the streets and she's hiding out in that dilapidated building and the two men come wandering in and one of them says, you know, oh, she... Uh, you know, some of the men have laid with her and said she's great, you know, and, you know, and the guy essentially gives her a dumpling and then proceeds to either assault or sleep with her, whatever you want to call it. She's been kind of reduced in status at this point from, uh, uh, she's not in her elegant surroundings anymore. Mm -hmm. She's covered in filth and whatnot, and she just lays back and you can hear him having his way with her and you can kind of see a little bit of his hat maybe moving in and out of frame and she's just eating a dumpling, you know, to the point where just no feeling whatsoever. And uh, those two scenes kind of bookend each other very well and kind of just show the the character where they started to where they've ended, you know, and it, it's a tragedy. The whole movie is really just a tragedy. If um, we, we I, I think we can keep the spoilers um, off the table in terms of uh, uh, the twist that uh, more greatly involves uh, Max Mock. He's not in the film that much, but he certainly he, he makes an appearance during the last uh, 10 minutes and is a part of the twists and that deals with the revenge and uh, the devious behavior and characters actually using after realizing that this is uh, it's probably from the subtitles but it certainly applies that this is a dog eat dog world you uh, can't sit there and expect angelic behavior to come out as uh, the emerging winner you're gonna be eaten spat out shut out that's why some characters are are sympathy towards certain characters uh, effectively change uh, but um, that's the tragedy that, uh, in a very short package, in a kind of a limited package, in terms of narrative and amount of characters and budget, certainly, still, um, it it doesn't feel ultimately, and maybe that's why I like it a little bit more, it doesn't feel ultimately like, oh, it's the 10th movie of the same uh, style in 1993. If you watch a couple of Charlie Cho films set in modern environments with the same cast and uh, same goofy sex, no wonder you feel like, yeah, it's probably the 10th film of the same style in 1993. Shot in the same week. It's shot in the same week, I'm sure. And uh, 
so I, I I've always found myself appreciating that Slave of the Sword uh, turns out to be you know it, it's our joke on this show, but it turns out to be a real movie, and uh, it uh, plays its places one foot in the commercial landscape of uh, the category free classification and one foot in the stuff that Choi Hak kicked off with Chinese ghost story swordsman once upon a time in China and uh, it doesn't feel like the two uh, should be in separate movies I do like that both of them are in um, in this movie uh, so I've always liked it in, in a sort of a solid manner I think one that I don't you know describe what I don't you know what turns me off from the movie I think a lot of it is that same thing I was talking about earlier, the Giallo, how unfair the twists and whatnot are. There's that, and there is a, a large portion of the movie, I'm going to say a good 20 to 30 minutes, where our, you know, where Pauline Chan's character is essentially falling in love with the man she watched behead her father, or what have you. And I won't even say falling in love, just she's just in love. Now, this figures into a twist that comes later, but you don't really see that twist coming because none of this makes sense, and it's treated with such blunt honesty. that there, And there's no hint that uh, perhaps there's something afoot, you know. And it just it doesn't feel honest. It feels like we're pulling the wool over your eyes a little bit, you know, to me. Yeah, a little bit of tropey style, uh, wuxia film style stuff, I suppose. Uh, bring in the person, the villain we haven't seen that much of, and then present uh, a few new beats of uh, drama and a couple of uh, outrageous acting moments, like ha 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 ha. So yeah, it it certainly doesn't feel uh, fresh necessarily. You can have a twist and still have hints, you know, at the twist that's coming, you know, and. And it probably will make your film a lot better than, you know, just pulling out a twist at the last minute and, oh, okay, well, that explains why the last 40 minutes didn't make sense. I, I do remember going back to uh, an, an earlier film that, you know, it's made in 1980, but it's a, it's a comedy film in Hong Kong that already realized that uh, the Wuxia film is this nightmare territory in terms of twists. It, it's a parody film. The closest, I guess, Hong Kong has come to uh, an airplane-style parody of their own genre. It's called Legend of the Owl, directed by David Chang. He's also in it. And there is a moment towards the end where the villain emerges like, <laughs> you didn't know it was me, and then takes off his mask. And the characters then look at him and, I don't do you know who he is i don't know who he is and then he has to sort of start explaining and filling in the gaps well because i'm you know and then that and that thing happened and there there's the, no we, we don't understand this but i guess we should fight anyway <laughs> you know, that's what we do so um, they 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 were aware early in the decades and uh, it's a style of storytelling that's uh elegant in some filmmakers hands and uh, not elegant in some filmmakers hands you know uh, this movie was made to fit in quite quickly in a limited window i think so in in some respects i think it can feel a little bit uh, quickly crafted maybe even on, maybe even on a story level if, if i can quickly go on a tangent of uh you know the first time i ever watched deep red i, I did not like it like the first time I watched it because did, did the you endings. watch the long version or the short version? 
if you probably even remember. Short, probably the, the two-hour version is long and funny. The short version is tight and not funny. Yeah, Lord, it's been 20 years, so I'm not sure. But I, I'll say that it's, it has a very cheap ending. And for years and years, I, I disliked it. And then, you know, I went back. I watched a lot of uh, Giallo in between, and I would forever tell people, hey, I don't like that one. But I went back and rewatched it and just kind of made peace with the fact that you can't see the twist coming, you know, or what have you. And uh, I genuinely love the film now. But I, so I, I think basically I just don't have a great history with <laughs> with movies that have cheap ass twists. So maybe that's partly why I critique this one. And uh, if you want to watch like this better balanced uh, mix of, uh, you know, revenge, murder, mystery, some sword play action, you really do need to go back to um, or watch promptly if you haven't seen it intimate confessions of a chinese court or something because that, that really is a template for how it's done i think it's sometimes inevitable that uh, filmmakers go back to it even if they don't know they're going back to it and i think within this movie there is uh, a hint of uh, intimate confessions influence even now uh, 21 22 years uh, later down the road you know so um uh, but that is, uh, you know, we 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 watched this for uh, we've watched it for this show. It's been ages though, so you have seen it once at the very least. But intimate confession isn't this uh, smart first necessarily. It's uh, it's adult, of course, but it isn't uh, this uh, cheapo uh, smart first with uh, random sex scenes or anything. It keeps it its focus on revenge and uh, elegant surroundings and uh, licking of wounds and um, limbs chopped off during the end. So it's all good. This sort of two film uh, retrospective on uh, violent category free classified wuxia might there might be better contenders than the assassin and slave of the sword but uh, they sort of stuck out for me yeah, and that's why i wanted to cover them uh, whether we fought uh, fought equal equally of them or not so um but uh, if you were to seek out any of these two that we've uh, watched uh, then uh, hit up uh, the assassin uh, and also uh, make your determination whether they uh, sew so, so someone's eyes shut or not. <laughs> because we couldn't figure it out if they did it for real or not with the with the needles. So. Uh, but I don't have anything else to say about Slave of the Sword. So um, anything else uh, you want to touch on? No, I think that about covers it. Would you be surprised if, uh, if Pauline had lived on, if uh, we would have seen the emergence of a solid dramatic actress outside of Category 3 films? I absolutely think she had the talent to do that. You know, she should have, you know, in a different world, I'm sure she did. She had all the chops to be somebody that, you know, it's talked about for years and years, but uh, just sometimes our demons get the better of us. Yeah, she uh, she invested, uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. She didn't feel um, out of uh, place, but she, she felt like she was under duress, of course. As we tell uh, told told you, yep, we we have some evidence of it on celluloid, and that's uh, I suppose a thing to celebrate. Uh, so it's a reason why I did this movie as well because uh, she deserves to be talked of, uh, and um, let's uh, remind ourselves that uh, she was out there and she was spotted by the likes of Stephen Chow because uh, she didn't put her in from Beijing with Love randomly. Uh, she saw something there to craft that uh, character with uh, weapons in her uh, in her boob area, and uh, it was all fun. Yeah, uh, so okay. 
Slave Disorder, its availability, it had a Taiwanese Laserdisc, a Hong Kong DVD, a Tai Seng replica of the same cinema print Hong Kong DVD, and we got to watch that uh, Taiwanese Laserdisc and therefore a slightly longer Taiwanese version at 80 minutes. Uh, we're just talking a few minutes extra. Uh, I didn't do a comparison uh, because uh, a few minutes extra means some extensions here and there, rather than completely new scenes that uh, change the twists. You know what I mean? So I, I didn't really um, set out to compare them. Uh, the Taisang import, that looks like it's from the Hong Kong DVD uh, version with cinema subtitles, is expensive. So it's really hard to find secondhand. You can find it on YouTube uh, in full. I don't remember if it's Cantonese or Mandarin, meaning if it's the Hong Kong version or the longer Taiwanese version. But under the circumstances, YouTube is your cheapest uh, option because uh, don't pay the secondhand prices that are out there. For the Taiseng um, import, uh, it uh, really needs to go down in price, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, only one episode, uh, sorry, only one film this episode, but uh, we'll be back. We're on a little bit of a roll here. We're going to do some uh, brief contact information and uh, just for all your podcast on fire network needs, including the This Week in Sleeves back catalog, head up, uh, hit up podcastonfire.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find their podcast. Just look up This Week in Sleaze or Podcast on Fire Network because we're part of that feed as well. And uh, you'll get us that way, easily. So I'm going to keep it brief uh, here. Hit, hit up uh, Josh's uh, YouTube uh, channel and uh, the, let, him, uh, let him know you love him that way by a uh, little subscribe uh, and um, watch out for his uh, take on brew exploitation in the future sometime. Do you think when that uh, doc comes out, that that big official doc, that you need to go back to the drawing board, uh, like, uh, like I hope uh, not <laughs> to, to make sure you got it right? <laughs> um, they have actual interviews with all of the you know the clones or what have you. So uh, you know their movie will be far more intuitive. Mine is just kind of an outward glance looking at the the genre from the point of view of just like a, a fan or what have you. Like a, essentially I'm just taking the movies and saying, okay, you've got your pseudo documentaries, your docudramas, you've got your outlandish movies, and then you've got the ones that have been retitled or, you know, what have you. Is, is Bruce Lee and I somewhere in there? Oh yeah, yeah, oh definitely. That's that's part of the docudramas. Check out that in the future, but also our episode here in the This Week in Sleaze archive on Bruce Lee and I, where Joshua went to town, breaking down what kind of uh, exploitation films there are. And uh, believe me, they're not all good. In fact, there are not many. They're all good. <laughs> but <laughs> some do it uh, a little bit better than others. Some are just shameless and need to go to hell immediately. Uh, okay, okay, let's stop the fucking and we'll be back with more true crime film coverage as I'd like to do a deep dive on what's called the... Uh, Bramar or Braemar Hill murders that, that was later depicted in the film Suburb Murder. But the arrested parties actually uh, were the subject of a dramatic film that was not category free, called From the Queen to the Chief Executive, that uh, big, by now, blockbuster director Herman Yao directed. Uh, so we might just take a look at both uh, just to have it in the back of our mind that. Uh, you know, these uh, persons were arrested and I believe the sort of conceit and the setup of from the Queen to the chief, chief Executive is that human rights groups protested against the fact that these youths had not received their final sentences. They were kept in this prison limbo and deserved 
could at the very least to get some kind of finalization even if it means like 50 years behind bars or whatever but to keep them in limbo i think was the focus on that dramatic piece so it doesn't really cover the crimes as such uh, maybe it never really mentions braemar hill but it's uh, it's about the uh, maybe fictionalized youths but there's uh, no doubt that herman was uh, looking at uh, something uh, cut out from real life too so we might uh, look at both just to sort of have the dramatic film in the back of our head as we watch suburb murder which uh, is a, w- w- was kind of a grim, grim film i remember so it's not uh, like <laughs> welcome to the suburbs oh no a murder well, let's have some sex first like our neighbor has glasses looks like charlie cho it is charlie cho sex 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 murder <laughs> Like, it wasn't tonally wild, if my memory serves me correctly. So, so let's sign off. And uh, thank you, thank you, Joshua, as always, for being on board. And uh, we'll continue on doing this uh, coverage uh, in uh, Hong Kong, uh, across the Taiwanese and Hong Kong smart films, I suppose. So, uh, I've been Sleaze K, and with me was the great Lord uh, Joshua Regal. So, say goodbye, buddy. Goodbye!